listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is filmmaker Lisa Bryant, who has immersed herself in the documentary world. She's a producer, a writer, and director. Some of you may be unfamiliar with Lisa's work, but when I say Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, suddenly you know her work in an instant. Lisa, welcome to Shoot It Now. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. And congratulations on this compelling documentary series. I see that you've got a a bunch of credits for producing and also writing, but this is your first big time, if we can call it that, directorial debut. Uh, Yes, actually, it is at this level, that's for sure. And the Netflix platform certainly uh, is worldwide and and puts things uh, on a different stratosphere, so to speak. So yes, I feel very privileged to tell such an important story to such a large audience for a a filmmaking debut. Um, You know, one couldn't, uh, you know, hope for much more. We'll get to the doco shortly, but first I want to find out about you, Lisa Bryant, and I know the listeners will be very interested to know how you started out in the industry, so take me back to the early inclinations of wanting to become a filmmaker and how that looked for you. Well, I was uh, very driven early on in, 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 in high school. I uh, grew up in Southern California, and I knew that I wanted to be um, to go to telecommunications and film school, and I achieved that, studied uh, that, but I did want to always be in front of the camera. I wanted to be a, a sportscaster, actually, and that was at a time when when females in sports, you know, there weren't very many of them. So I was trying to break some new ground there and, and join the ranks of people like Robin Roberts and Hannah Storm, who I'm not sure worldwide, I think I think they're pretty well known. So my first job was as a news and sports reporter in a small town in Texas. And that was kind of an unusual path. Although I did have some film background in school, I really wanted to achieve that goal. So I kind of had different goals. And at that stage in my life, that was one of them. And I quickly I was, had some success and moved to a bigger city. I was in Houston for a number of years, was, was passionate about sports. And I uh, covered many Olympic games. And, and that was uh, very interesting. And when that was going on, I was doing a lot of investigative uh, stuff regarding sports and some of it was criminal things and that kind of um, I was investigating like the gymnastics world back when um, Bella Caroli was not long ago he's still kind of in gymnastics but um, I meant 20 years ago he was you know the king team USA and did some exposés on some of the problems that the gymnastics world has so that kind of sparked my interest in uh, doing, you know, some film work, um, did some little sidebars on that. And then actually life went in a different direction. I got married and had children and I was traveling a lot with sporting events and I decided to go behind the camera and I began producing and doing, you know, directing smaller projects. And I got into also entertainment, working, uh, covering red carpets, the Academy Awards, doing things like that, uh, producing for celebrities, uh, writing about celebrities, following them around, going on set visits. That was an an interesting uh, period as well. And, you know, kind of as my life evolved. And then I moved from California to New York. And then that's when I really got into documentary filmmaking. So I started to do a lot more crime and documentary type work probably for like the last 10 years kind of had an interesting uh, road to where I am now so that's kind of in a nutshell my story 
It's interesting because you were in front of the camera. It no doubt gives you a great appreciation for people that are being sat down for an interview. Not everyone gets that opportunity. In your case, you were doing a lot of sport. That's not an easy profession to do. There's all sorts of things that go into fronting the camera. Did you find that that gave you some sort of, I guess, empathy for somebody that you're interviewing as a documentary filmmaker? Uh, Definitely. I think it makes you a better interviewer when you have been an interviewee. And it can go either way also, I think, because you, you know what makes you feel comfortable to say, but you also know a lot of times people are very guarded, so you know there's more there. So in a very um, empathetic way and an understanding way, I think you know your, your demeanor and the way you probe and question and relate to people um, is easier. And you can always tell and read their body language when you know they're comfortable with you. And I think that's kind of a, a trait that I, I try to empathize with, with whoever I'm with, whatever topic it is. If I'm interviewing a president or you're interviewing a, a death row inmate or, you know, things that I've done in the past or a celebrity, there's different levels of comfort. An assault victim, you know, one of the survivors in the Epstein series, I think you always need to know who you're interviewing and put yourself in their shoes and try to understand how they could be feeling about these types of questions. You know, as a filmmaker, you do always have kind of a goal and, and a type of answer you think you might hear from them. And if they're very guarded, um, you know, you don't want to push, but you also want to try to make them feel comfortable enough that you are getting, um, you know, the information that you feel is appropriate and, and right. And you want, you know, everybody else to know who is going to hear that story. So I do think, you know, there are benefits to having been in both chairs, so to speak. And has there ever been a better time, given the huge advancements in technology, uh, particularly around digital camera technology, to be a filmmaker today? It, things are getting better, easier, and, you know, in the pandemic, yes, some things, uh, you know, have stalled, but there's a way to get these interviews done. You know, this remote setups that we have look very, very good. Um, you know, the digital world makes everything so much easier, yes, in every way. So I think, yes, uh, it, it's definitely a good time for anybody coming in. And what's that, what I find so interesting is that the younger people now, they have so much shortcuts to, to things that took so much longer before. And they're so much smarter in a way that they have to learn things and, and, and they figure it out in the computer world and, and everything digital there are things that, you know, people who have been in the business a long time, you, you, you know, you have to, to learn as you go. It's just something these kids kind of grow up with doing. And it's like, you know, it's like the tick world and all of that is like everybody just knows how to do all that you know it's it, it's so interesting how times have evolved and changed in terms of the technology social media etc it's a completely different story if this was made 10 years ago that is very true and unfortunately it wasn't made 10 years ago i wish it was made 10 years ago and we wouldn't have had so many hundreds of other victims and not as many people would have seen or known about it you know even on, on netflix 10 years ago wasn't you know what it is today it's very important uh, i think in getting messages out globally so having a look at your epstein series how did this all come into your mind of wanting to make this film? Talk me through how the beginnings of it happened. Well, I have a long relationship with with Radical Media, which is a, a well-known high-end production company. And I have a long-standing relationship with a, a true crime pioneer, uh, Joe Berlinger. He's kind of been a mentor to me, and I've worked on several recent projects with him. 
and I knew this was in the works. James Patterson, the world famous, one of the best selling authors, had written a book several years ago, back in 2016, I believe it came out. He exposed Epstein for who he was and somebody who has millions of, of readers and he felt it was so important. He brought it around to different production companies, Radical Media and Joe Berlinger understood how important this was. People, people are not listening to this. How can this be going on? There's proof of it here. How could he have gotten a slap on the wrist? He exposed what happened in back in 2008 um, when Epstein, you know, had such a short, you know, jail term for, you know, there's a 53 page indictment against him and he, he gets off with like two prostitution charges. It, it was, you know, outrageous. And so it was something, you know, as a female that was, I felt really, really needed to be told a story of, you know, white privilege and power. You know, they asked me to come on board. I was going to be the showrunner, uh, but it cried out for having a female director because of the sensitive material would would have probably more empathy and be able to um, connect a little bit better, possibly, than having a man. It just made sense. I was going to be in that role anyway to to direct. It was a great honor to, you know, to be entrusted with, you know, this type of a project. You know, we wanted to tell the story that should have been told from these survivors. It's their story to tell. It was their narrative and we needed to get it out there. So Netflix saw the importance of it. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to to start it actually before it became, he was a household name. Um, so we had already laid a lot of groundwork. We began the project in, I believe it was October of 2018. And, you know, nobody even knew his name really around the world until his arrest, you know, in 2019, in July. So we, we were like almost nine months into the project when everything changed you know we had to rethink everything he's arrested all of a sudden we had been covering the story we had been interviewing people it was very difficult from the get-go because he was alive he was very powerful he was very wealthy he was very well aware we were doing this story um the miami herald story had just come out or hadn't come out yet it came out shortly after um we began production so it was difficult. People were afraid of him. He, you know, threatened people. His attorneys had done such a good job. He had done such a good job over the last, you know, 10 years of shutting people down. Threats, you know, NDAs, all kinds of things like that. So it was very difficult from the get-go. And then all of a sudden overnight, you know, our story changed. He became like this household name that people were appalled by, yet, you know, fascinated, needed to learn more. Hundreds of, of news media from all over the world congregated in New York where I live and is doing this project, all of a sudden, you know, it's this overnight story that people couldn't get enough of, couldn't believe, you know, were disgusted by. And we had already gotten into our second episode of this four part film. And we really had to kind of shut down over that summer to rethink how we were going to do it. We had to kind of put our documentarian hat, you know, a little bit aside to cover some of the news, which is a difficult thing to do, I think, because, you know, usually things are very well thought out, well planned. And our script kind of had to go off script there. You know, everything changed dramatically, uh, you know, in July of 2019. I just want to go back to when you said you were originally going to be the showrunner and mm -hmm. then you wanted to get into the directing side. How did that happen for you? They were looking towards you to to be the showrunner, the producer of the series, and then you said, well, look, you know, mm -hmm. I'd like to direct this. 
Tell us how that process happened. Well, they asked me to, actually. They said, we think this is right for you. You basically are doing this anyway. You've done this in your last few projects. When you're a, a producer and a showrunner and an executive producer, which I had been on my last you know, four or five projects, you know, when you're out in the field, you are directing your talent or whatever, whether or not you have another director with you. So um, I think I knew how to do it. They recognized that. They recognized my strength in talking to people and tenacity in, in getting, you know, the job done, getting the information out there, getting the interviews that we need to tell the story properly. So they asked me if I would do both. So I was, I was actually three roles. I was an executive producer, the showrunner, and the director. It was all consuming and, and knowing that the content was very, you know, raw and real and in the end, I look back and I think, wow, in some ways it seemed like it was forever and all consuming, but it seems like it was just yesterday that we were starting too, because the story's not over. You know, he may be gone, but uh, the story and the fallout is really just beginning. So looking at the production itself, I know that there'll be documentary listeners tuned in right now wanting to know, okay, what was the production size, the crew size, how many people were actually working on the series. Can you give that a little bit of a, a breakdown for our audience, Lisa? Well, it wasn't big enough. It never seems like it's big enough. It was a very small team in the beginning, and it, it didn't actually grow much either because it's the most complex story you know, ever. It's, you know, spans 30 decades of lies and deceit. We had uh, a team of three producers, myself. We had two APs, a researcher, coordinator. We had a series producer, and that's really about it. And then, of course, our editors would come on board once we started. As the story kept changing, um, you used to own episode one if you're an editor in a producing team. But, you know, we would end up swapping material because things kept changing. After his, his death, we had to kind of, again, you know, get out our board and we'll put our cards up. Uh, oh, my gosh, the beats, they've changed. And we need to have to, are we going to tell this story any differently? Actually, in the end, the team, of course, stayed together and we, we wanted to stay on our path. Our goal was to give these victims a voice, these survivors, and tell their story. You know, we didn't want to start with the big news. Oh, he's dead, rested. He's dead. You know, anybody could have done that. It's how we got there that was so important. That was our message. We never veered from that. You know, we wanted people to, to be outraged. And I think at him being able to get a slap on the wrist and something that was so preventable, you know, the government had just done the right thing. So many people failed in so many ways since the investigation began in 2005. It's, you know, 15 years ago. We wanted to expose that and expose the truth. There's a lot of truth that hasn't been told still that I think is yet to come. But our goal, we wanted to stay survivor focused, survivor forward and get that out there. And I think that's what we did very well is like, you know, because Netflix has a, a worldwide audience. They had no idea about this sweetheart secret plea deal that was made, you know, so many years ago. And the fact people, as they saw the series and the documentary, unfold, the goal was also to make people angrier and angrier. And, and I think that just happens as you're watching, you just like, it's one, I can't believe it after another. And, and I think Epstein, he was so good at manipulation and lying and, and coercion and all these things and paying people off and his money and his blackmail and all these things, you know, enabled this to happen. And there were so many enablers and so many people afraid of him who could have said something but didn't. And we just really felt that message needed to get put out there, not just covering, yep, 
now he's dead and, and who else is responsible or who else, you know, everybody wants so many names, who else is linked to him? But how did we get here? It's a bigger societal issue. You know, I mean, it just, there are so many systemic failures and it's such a systemic problem and sex trafficking is such a huge worldwide problem. You know, I don't think there's a bigger pedophile than Jeffrey Epstein. But there are certainly ones that are probably pretty close, you know, that are still out there abusing women, you know, even after hearing about this. It's, it's a huge problem. Let's go to day one of the production. Day one of filming for a filmmaker is a, a nervous time. It's a nervous day. Day one, lots of things flash through our minds of whether we have organised everything down to the last detail. Deep breathing and calm heads is required. I can imagine all of that was happening with you. Maybe a little more writing on this, though, as you embarked on a story that you didn't know how it was going to end. So tell me about that first day and what, as a first-time director, in, in terms of this size and the scope, you were thinking on day one. Well, actually, I was thinking, is this interviewee going to show up? Actually, you go to all of this preparation and you make sure you have all the right gear and all the right people and all, all your questions, everything, you know, you want to make sure. But we had the added layer of fear. Everybody was afraid from survivors, from the attorneys of survivors. What if I do talk? Is this going to be, you know, are you the right outlet? How are you going to treat these women? There was a, a fear. Are they going to show up? You know, we worked so hard to earn trust of these young women who who were courageous enough to take part there. And there was a great fear. Are they going to are they going to show up prior to the to our very first sit down interview with the survivor? We had talked to numerous ones. I you know, that was key in, in setting up, you know, a, a relationship with them and meeting with them in advance and talking to them in person and making them feel comfortable. Are they going to follow through? We had a couple that one day they said, yes, I'm ready. I want to do it. And then they'd call back the next day, you know, I just can't do it. So honestly, there was a lot of nerves there, um, you know, on top of just your normal. Do I have the right lens? Do I have this? Do I have that? Is it going to be cloudy? Is it going to, you know, all these things go through your head on a normal day. But I think the biggest thing uh, really was each time we had a survivor shoot was, are they going to show up? And fortunately, they did. Uh, one time, however, I will share very early on before his arrest. First one went very, very well. The second shoot, we flew a crew out of state. Uh, everybody flying from New York, you know, about 15 people. The survivor, she said, I really want to do the story, but you know, I'm afraid. I, I, I can't, I don't want to be identified. I don't want my voice to be heard. I, I need to be in, well, of course, we want you to feel comfortable. We can put you in silhouette. We can disguise your voice. And, you know, she was nervous about that. We didn't want to push too hard. We're like, well, do you want to think about it? But we, here we have, you know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars. But my other side is like, you know, morally, this, this is a moral question here. If she's not comfortable, we're not going to do this shoot. And that's kind of how we left it. And she decided to go ahead with the shoot, but we did film her in silhouette. Fast forward to, you know, the arrest eight months later, she shows up in court. She's out. She's open. She wants to talk. So we reshot the same woman who we were very, very proud of for number one speaking when if she was in fear of her life and did it in silhouette anyway. Then we shot her on camera, which is, you know, giving me the chills just to think about that, you know, that she's come forward. She's so brave. And now come out and, and wants to tell her story publicly with she's no longer a Jane Doe. You know, that was kind of an incredible moment. But um, to get back to your original question is that was always kind of a, a fear of ours is oh, I hope they show up, you know. 
It looks like a project was set with time delays. Some of the victims, the survivors, as you mentioned, were being hesitant to begin with. And I guess that you had to build trust and a workable relationship with those women involved. But just as important, you also had to build the relationship with their lawyers and probably their wider support people. So as a filmmaker in that position, how did you manage all of the fears, all of the anxiety from the very people that you most wanted to open up and tell their story to camera? Because that's a bit of a balancing act, Lisa. You know, not everybody can do that. It is. And I think it's a combination of, of being, you know, assertive not too assertive, you know, knowing who you're dealing with. And when you're dealing with an attorney, you need to know your stuff. Sat down with Brad Edwards on day three of joining this project. There was going to be a trial in the beginning. Brad Edwards and, and Jeffrey Epstein had this long war, if you would. And there was going to be a trial where, where some victims were going to speak for the first time. And we race out to cover this. It ends up that they settled. But that was my first meeting with Brad Edwards. And I was able to sit down with him, talk to him, meet him, and explain that we're on the right side here. And we're out to put out to the world how bad this, this guy is. And we're going to dive in and investigate how this happened. How did we get to this point? The same thing that, that he's been trying to understand for 10 years. Tell us how, why and how this happened. You know, how did the secret plea deal happen? So meeting with him and some of his other attorneys like Sigurd McCauley, Jack Scarola, Spencer Coven, these people who are critical to have in your program and who are the ones that have been deeply involved in this for, you know, more than a decade. It was a lot of phone calls, a couple of coffees. Mike Ryder, uh, the police chief of Michael Ryder in Palm Beach, he was a tough nut to crack. I met with him four or five times before he agreed. He was very nervous and very worried about how he was going to be portrayed. You know, you just have to work extra hard and with kid gloves and, and, and be a human being. I think that's what I do best. It's like, you know, I am who I am. And for better or for worse, I'm going to be very honest you know, in my goals and with what I'm going to say and how, how I'm going to be and, and how, you know, what type of questions I'm going to ask. And there's no ambushing and take me at face value. Here I am. And, and hopefully that works. And I think that has worked for me in my career. I think honesty and integrity is, is key. And it's something, this is such a sensitive subject. And they're talking about very, very, very personal, you know, and very horrific, you know, details of things that have happened to them in their life. You know, it's interesting. And that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating that um, the women that he preyed upon, many of them, most of them in need of something, you know, whether it be they came from a bad background and they needed love or they needed money or they needed support or they wanted to go to the a school they couldn't afford or they wanted to go overseas. They all, they all needed something, but they didn't have, you know, great support. And um, I think they found that support in our team and I cared, I cared enough to listen. You know, we cared enough to put their story out there and that's, you know, a very good feeling. And it's important to me to, to tell their story, right. You know, make them feel proud of themselves. And we've heard so many wonderful comments from, you know, the majority of them who have now, aren't they're no longer afraid and, and they're, they will tell their story and they've been asked to speak and one of them started a Facebook group. You know, there's there's positive change that's happening because of their bravery and, and they realize that now and they realize that I'm not a prostitute and, you know, they called me a prostitute 15 years ago and, and now I know that I'm not. I, I, I know he's a sick man and, and it honestly it took 
not just this show, all the media attention, Julie Brown, all, all everybody in the, you know, in the world caring about them. Nobody had cared. They were shut down for so long. And, and it was so important, I think, to them to finally be heard. And as a filmmaker, you also had people trying to stop you from proceeding and making the film. So in many ways, it's almost against all odds that you succeeded. Was there ever a time that you started to doubt the whole process of what you were doing and wonder how you would get through it all? Well, in the very, very beginning when we did start, we had many, many no's, uh, not just from survivors and people that we did reach out to. We had you know, people who were in fear that something would happen to them or their families. I'm talking even people who were friends of his, uh, people who are in his little black book. Well, you know, we had so many people, you know, say, oh, I don't know why I'm in it. Um, I had I never met him. And then you see photos of them elsewhere together. And, you know, people wanted nothing to do with them. So we had many, many hurdles to climb in that respect, because in the beginning, and, you know, even now, you know, people don't want anything. I never knew him. I never knew him. I never knew him. Uh, so it was it was very complicated. And we were shot down by a number of people. Some of them did come around. That's part of the, the, the don't give up. You know, if, are they really afraid? Uh, are they afraid of him? And then, you know, you would revisit that later, you know, uh, later on as some people left the door open or even if they didn't leave the door open after he died, we, we, we kind of circled back. And sure enough, because we had done some of the meeting with them, and some of the talking with them, they felt we were really in this before everybody else. And we really do care to get that story out. So yeah, it was, uh, it was very interesting in, in that respect. As a filmmaker, when you told your friends and family, this was the subject matter that you were going to make, how concerned were people around you? Uh, you know, it's interesting. My husband, I did take a couple of trips to, uh, St. Thomas, which is right, you know, a stone's throw from from Epstein's private island. There's a, a tracker on your phone, you know, uh, the Life 360 is one of the applications that, and he couldn't track me one night and he was very worried. He couldn't get any sleep because he knew that I was over there and Epstein was alive and maybe he's got people following me. And, and you know, it was very, it did get it at some points. I wouldn't say I was, I was uh, scared of him. He was he definitely was aware. I actually knocked on his door several locations and spoke to different people who had worked for him, staff who, you know, in Palm Beach. I, I would buzz the buzzer that was outside of his gates. And, and I met his uh, houseman, Renato, several times. And I would leave my car to identify myself. And we were tracking his flights. So we knew he was there. And I would say, hi, it's Lisa Bryant. I'm, you know, the director of the Netflix show. You know, we've, we've reached out trying to get, you know, is Mr. Epstein home? No, he's not here. No, he's not here. And I go, I'm going to leave my card. And I would leave my card in the mailbox. Please have him, you know, give me a call. Let him know I was here. And, and, I, and it, these conversations with the house manager. And I'm like, are you sure he's not here? The flight record show, he's, he landed in Palm Beach. And it's like, no, he's not here. I don't know where he is. And anyway, that happened a couple of times. And uh, we did actually see him uh, out and about in New York a couple of times. We did do a couple of stakeouts of his New York mansion and got some photos. And, and sure enough, there were girls. Uh, I, they did not seem underage, but there were girls coming and going from his house. He knew we were there and doesn't seem to bother him. I He really felt he was above the law. I do believe that with, with, with every fiber of my being that he just didn't think the rules applied to him, did not think he was going to get caught. And uh, he definitely knew that, that we were filming. And, and I do think that because of that attitude that he had, that he had gotten away with it for so long, that 
he didn't really try to shut us down. I think he just didn't think, even if we did go ahead and film, you know, this big series, that nothing was going to happen to him. But he was wrong. He, he you know, he, it all finally caught up to him. And sadly, in, in some respects, um, he he's not here to really face justice. He took the cowardly way out. The good news is that you know, women are not being abused by him any longer. Lisa, he didn't know your backstory of this tenacious uh, sports presenter. He might be viewing the whole thing through a different lens if he did. No telling. I would have loved to sat and chat with him face to face. It would have been fascinating. It's so interesting when you hear him speak in those depositions. Um, I don't know if you saw in the series, you know, he's so smug and he doesn't come across so brilliant and bright, a little Mm. stumbly. And he's got this big, thick, Brooklyn accent. I think it's it's really shocking that he was able to manipulate, you know, rich and powerful people to do whatever he wanted, really. Um, and they were afraid of him too. So I, it it is really shocking this person that he was and how he got that way. It was it was fascinating to investigate all of that and how that really was his mo since he he was in his, like early twenties. He lied and cheated his way and failed up into every job and into everything uh, that he ever did. Really, it's one of those stories that you just you couldn't make it up if you tried. When a filmmaker goes about their craft of making a film, we store our stories on hard drives. Normally, a filmmaker doesn't have to worry about someone hacking into their files and maybe deleting and corrupting files. But this was a a real concern for you at the time. There were, and even now, I guess, people trying to cover things up. Tell us how much over-the-shoulder looking you were doing as a filmmaker. A lot. Before we started Radical Media and Netflix, we took great precautions because we knew he would learn about it um, and he was alive again and and rich and powerful. We took great precautions before we even started filming. We worked out of a locked room that had a camera in it. We had a safe in it. We would put all of our media in in the safe at night. Um, All of our edit suites were on a a secret system uh, that nobody else in the in in the building had access to none of the other editors uh we would close the even in the it's like all windows or in these edit rooms and we would we had big covers uh to, so that people couldn't look in and see what we were doing it was it, we were known as the florida project for more than a year big secret at a big company with you know couple hundred employees there. So we, we really tried to keep things secret and we used encrypted communication that we weren't texting. Uh, you know, it was all a lot of phone work and made it, you know, sometimes a little bit clunkier and a little bit harder, but you know, it was so important that we did not want him to try to shut us down, to hack into our computers, to hack into our media, hack into, you know, the system. So we took great precautions and, you know, very glad we did. And the hacking had happened to other sources, I understand. Is, is that correct? He managed to shut the media down at every turn for, for years. You know, as we know now, ABC chose not to air. You know, they had the story four years prior to us coming out. They had done a lot of the, the same, you know, work. It interviewed some of the survivors. Virginia Giuffre was told them, sat down and told them their story. But, you know, between him and, and these high-powered attorneys, they convinced, you know, a big network like ABC who, you know, they're very nervous about lawsuits, did not air the story. And, you know, there was an investigation into ABC for why they didn't do that, because that's four more years that perhaps if they had run that story, perhaps he could have been stopped sooner. So really kind of frightening that people backing down uh, at such high levels that would fold to the power and the money and the wealth of Epstein, someone like him, and the people who he surrounds himself with. 
surrounding himself with presidents, former presidents, royalty. Well, we might not get an interview with that that royal family then. If we if we air this, it might be looked bad. And sure, you have to be very legally buttoned up. We had to be very journalistic in our approach, and we were, and we fact checked everything. But there was no way we weren't running with the story. And jumping a little further forward into the production, how crazy did it get for you as the producer-director of the series when Epstein was found dead because the story just changed in an instant? It changed in an instant many times. It changed when he was arrested. Then it changed when he when he killed himself. Uh, it, it changed dramatically. It was very hectic. It was always very hectic. We were always sort of fighting for interviews, so to speak. But then when hundreds of people from all over the world were fighting for the interviews with the same brave survivors who came out, it, you know, it was very, very stressful. You know, we had to like pivot and shift, you know, and keep keep going. You know, we weren't going to stop. We had been at it the longest. And I think that really paid off for us. But um, yeah, it was it was very tricky and stressful. And, and I lived and breathed it. I would wake up in the middle of the night. And, you know, I had, had a difficult time sleeping. It's like, oh, I forgot about this. What about that? We got to get this. And with this interview tomorrow, with that, and, you know, it was all consuming for two years. It was all consuming. But you know, I, I do feel feel good and, and relieved now that it's led to, uh, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell being arrested behind bars. And she's the first of what I believe will be many people that will certainly be questioned and perhaps arrested as well uh, for being co-conspirators. So there's if this is a worldwide sex trafficking operation. That's what was so eye opening. And yes, there are some things that we couldn't put on the air that I do think will come out. You know, a lot of these things that are out now was like, oh, we knew that a long time ago, but we did not have the concrete proof needed to broadcast it. And that could be frustrating at times. You know, certain things about you know Deutsche Bank, we knew all of that, but we did not have the, we didn't have the manpower to spend eight months just researching Deutsche Bank, you know, and get those papers that you needed, or that from the SEC, or to prove that you know someone like Barclays or whoever might might have been involved. So, so there were some frustrations with it as well. But you know, again, we were trying to keep the victims at, as the center of peace and the focal point, and I think we did do that. And I think that is the right move because that's really what it's about. It's, it's, it's human nature, human beings, and trying to understand how how something like this could happen and how these young women could have been, you know, trapped into this. You know, because uh, I think one of the the things that we hear so often when people talk about this is, well, why didn't they just leave? They were damaged, a lot of them. He was manipulative. Uh, he was threatening. Uh, he, he provided for them, and he he you know generally treated some of them with with great kindness. And it was a very slippery slope in in each girl's situation. It was it was so different. But I think the, the biggest reason they didn't leave was they were afraid and they couldn't get out. And once you're trapped into something like that, once you're coerced, that's what sex trafficking is. That you know it's so hard to get out of. I remember a few months ago after watching your series thinking about Ghislaine Maxwell still at large at that time, it did cross my mind then that as a filmmaker you would want to follow up if she was ever arrested and presumably carry on with the film because in many ways the film hasn't yet ended. It feels like it's hit the pause button. Yeah, so then Maxwell was arrested, which is another part of a fluid moving story with many more parts to potentially be flushed out. So it's fascinating from a filmmaking perspective and a journalistic one of wanting to complete the story. Is that how you feel? 
Certainly. That was the first thing. It's like, oh, here we go again. We got to go. It's not to say that we're not going to. It's certainly, it, it is very fluid. Um, there's so much daily. There's new new information coming out. So, but what, you know, we have to think what's really important in our worldwide audience to know. Is it is it every single day something new happens and this person said this, or this person said that. Now, Ghislaine Maxwell being arrested is a huge development. There's no doubt. And we are following that. There's talks that, that we might add to the series, but it's not you know, a definite, let's see if she goes to trial, but we, we don't every single day cover every development that's coming out. You know, there's a lot of these papers being released now from the Virginia Giuffre lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell that are fascinating. Well, we, we had a lot of this information before. So it's like, what does everyone really need to know? Um, and how much now Ghislaine is fascinating in herself and she's a whole episode. So, so there's the potential of just doing something on her because all these other things are so fluid, but her story is, you know, equally horrific, but it, it's fascinating. Why would a woman take part in these, you know, activities and, you know, uh, that we've been told by five of our nine survivors that we talked to were either abused or recruited by her and or both. When you have the same types of stories from women from different age groups who didn't know each other, there's some truth there. So she can say she's not guilty uh, until the cows come home, but there's definitely, you know, a lot of truth there and, and hopefully it will come out in court one day one day soon. I can't think in modern terms of a film situation quite like this story, whereby we now have uh, streaming services like Netflix that can create the opportunity for a filmmaker like yourself to continue the film. And why wouldn't Netflix want to continue anyway? Because I would imagine as a result of the virus lockdowns around the world, more than likely gave Netflix incredibly large viewing numbers for your series. So it is a different time that we live in, in terms of continuing this story. It's very true. It is true. Yes, we had great numbers. And I do think the story is fascinating. And, and I do think, though, that, you know, people were watching a lot of and still are watching a lot of, of shows and the streaming services are, are very, very popular. And so that definitely did help. But yeah, I do think that people are thirsty for more and hungry for more. So without saying too much, they may get it. We shall see, but it's a, it's a difficult time to film. It is tougher. Uh, things are coming back. I don't know how things there are there in New Zealand. People are back shooting again now here in New York, I think around the world, but in different ways. And, and some people are comfortable with it. Some people aren't. So uh, it's going to be a long time before you go back to just kind of a free reign and, and, and shooting films the way they used to be done. Even going to do a simple interview, uh, you have to be tested for COVID. Everybody has got to wear their masks. Many different ways to do these, these interviews now. Definitely interesting times. And, you know, it's great for viewership, but it's also, it's, it's hard on, on the filmmakers to bring new content. Uh, something interesting about, you know, our show, our last two episodes had to be finished remotely. We needed to get it out there. We wanted to be first out there and, and we wanted to make sure that we did it right. So even though it did take a little bit longer in the end, you know, we were midway through our third episode of edit, you know, when the pandemic hit. So we, in the end, we did have to finish the, the third and fourth episodes remotely. So that was, you know, a first for everyone. <laughs> When you watched as a filmmaker directing the Jeffrey Epstein series, Prince Andrew in the BBC interview, who says about the photo of Virginia Roberts to Frey, oh, it's not me in the photo, it's been doctored. And then the subsequent fallout that he had over the worst royal family interview on record. How, I'm curious to know how energizing that was for your cause to get the truth out because he had been denying that for some time. 
Well, it was really good timing on our part because we were in Australia with Virginia two days after that happened. So we had her immediate raw reaction to that. And she, you know, was very emotional and real about it and very disappointed and upset by it. And, you know, we were thrilled that that we were able to get that into the series. If we had wrapped any sooner, uh, you know, of course we reached out to Buckingham House trying to get our own interviews, which we knew would never happen, but you had to do all the right things in order to do it. And to see him, you know, as train wreck television at its, you know, best or worst, whichever way you want to look at it. In some ways, that was a, a filmmaker's dream to have that. That was crazy. Uh, and and then to have her reaction immediately on the heels of it was, you know, one of the brighter moments I think of the series, and that was really real and shocking, really. And you know, Prince Andrew's downfall has been rapid and swift since then. Has anyone in your circle ever floated the possibility that Prince Andrew could be prosecuted over this? If you're asking me, I don't think it will happen. I, you know, I think he's too powerful. His family's too powerful. I just think that it, it won't happen. You know, which is, I feel sorry for Virginia, uh, and she's very determined, and you know, she's really, really a strong person, and and she's not back down from these high powered names. So I have to give her all the credit in the world. When people called her a liar, a prostitute for years, she has stayed you know, steadfast to her stories and she has not backed down to the, the royal family, Epstein, Maxwell, you know, she has not backed down. And, but I do think Prince Andrew, uh, it'd be like the president, it's very, very difficult and will be very, very difficult to ever see anything happen to him. So what's next for you? Well, I'm still following this and we'll see what happens, what comes of that. And I've got some other little things that have spawned a little bit from this and some of the the survivors that I mentioned and I've spoken about other passions and things that have come out of that. I'd like to continue to do some work on women's issues. Um, we shall see. A lot of good opportunities and this is still a very important story that I hope to continue to follow. Well, Lisa, it's been great finding out about your career as a filmmaker. I'm sure that there is still plenty of fuel in the tank as far as the Epstein series is concerned, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that evolves as time goes on. Once again, thank you very much for talking to us on Shoot It Now. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.